Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. September 8th, 1860. Edward Spencer was a sophomore student at Northwestern University on the shores of Lake Michigan. He got up that morning and he thought that it was going to be like any other day. Some of the early risers got up at dawn as they usually did, and they went for a walk or a jog along Lake Michigan on the edge of campus. It's there that they noticed that a lot of debris had washed up on the shore. And as they walked along and got closer in the morning rays of sunlight, they realized that some of the debris was human. Some folks were huddling together, shivering in in the cold and, and in bewilderment. Others were lying face down in the surf. They didn't make it. And word spread quickly across campus that something had happened in the middle of the night. The sleeping campus had no way of knowing that miles offshore, the big steamer, the Lady Elgin, had collided with a small schooner carrying Union soldiers back from a campaign speech by Stephen Douglas in Chicago that evening. At about 2.30 in the morning, the boats collided, and it resulted in heavy damage, and the Lady Elgin never made it back to port. Life rafts were deployed, and vests were handed out, but in the panic, much was lost and much was turned over. The hundreds on deck as the ship was going down looked for anything that they could they could float on. And the Lady Elgin disaster remains one of the greatest tragedies in the history of the Great Lakes. Nearly 300 people lost their lives in those early morning hours. Hundreds were left floating, trying to make it to shore in the cold waters and the huge waves and the heavy winds. When word came across campus to Edward Spencer, who was a student lifeguard, he realized that he had to do something. Northwestern University had the only life-saving station in America on the edge of Lake Michigan at that time. And so Edward quickly tied a rope around his midsection, and he ran out, swimming beyond the jetties and beyond the breakers, into the open water, for he found a woman floating on a piece of wood. Kickling and paddling, he brought her to shore, and looking back out to sea, he saw many others, and he realized that he had to go back again. And along with several other students, Edward kept going, and he brought back another, and another, and another, and another. And over the course of six hours, Edward Spencer pulled 17 people to safety and salvation ashore. Fast forward decades later, Edward's hair is white and so is his beard. He's been invited to a seminar in Los Angeles as a special guest on a conference on life-saving techniques. And it's question and answer time, and he's being asked about that fateful day, and, and the interviewer has this one final question for him. He says, Mr. Spencer, that was such a heroic day. So much has been written about it. What is the one thing that stands out more than anything else? And without missing a beat, Edward replied, Since that day, not one of the 17 has reached out and said thank you. There was a murmur and a a hush over the audience, and you saw an old man looking back over the decades of his life, and not a single thank you. 
wow, this is such a heroic story with, with such a sorrowful ending. Edward lost some of the use of his legs on that day because of the exposure to the elements and was never thanked. I wonder if Edward Spencer realized that his story was nothing new. Nearly 1,900 years before that day, Jesus had wondered about the same lack of gratitude by some that he had saved. That's what we're going to look at today. We're beginning a new series uh, that we're calling the Optimism Factor. We're going to see how we can see differently, how we can look for the positive and not merely the negative in life. Do you agree there's lots of stuff, lots of negative to see in life right now? Yet, we're not just only going to talk about the, that syrupy power of positive thinking stuff. We're going to talk about spiritually, what God has for each one of us. And, and when we want to change the way we think, we can also change our actions with it to be optimistic people. So today we start with an incredible story, Edward Spencer, you know, 1860. But 1900 years before that, Luke chapter 17. It's just a few verses. It's short. The message won't necessarily be. But in there, there's some, there's some powerful stuff. Don't say I didn't warn you. You'll see the title here, The Nine Guys Who Missed Thanksgiving. But this message doesn't necessarily have to follow a holiday. This could be taught in July and August. It could be taught in the middle of winter. It could be taught whenever. It doesn't matter, as you're going to see. Today, as we begin Advent, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how to look at your glass. Is it half full? Or is it half empty? Is it three quarters full or is it three quarters empty? How we can start seeing life and, and thinking about life differently and how that can affect all that we see and do. So Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Pick up your life notes and look with me, please. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now remember, you, you got Galilee up here, you got Samaria in the middle, and you got Jerusalem down to the south. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud, in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, reading these four ver verses... It leaves so much, we're going to get to the others in a minute. Reading these four verses, it leaves so much to think about and, and go on. And there's basically, there's a question, I believe, that comes out of them. And then there's an observation before we look at the remaining verses that are on your life notes. The first question is, what does it take to get you and me to use our MasterCard? Now, I know this sounds corny or cheesy, but no, I'm not talking about credit or, or debit, not at all. This is about 10 lepers on the side of the road, and they're, they're yelling out, Master, Master, have pity on us. What does it take to, to get you to the point to where you, you play that Master card? We read this story, and we're like, well, of course, they're going to call out. I mean, they've got leprosy. And you talk about a scary disease back then. In the, in the Bible, leprosy was much more than what we call Hansen's disease today. There's, there's one hospital for people with leprosy or Hansen's disease in the United States. It's, it happens to be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I worked with the, when I was a line officer, I worked with the chaplain who was the chaplain there. I worked with him in the Navy because he's a reservist. But Hansen's disease is still around us today. And we have about 150 to 250 cases each year are reported in the United States. In South America and Central America, it's much more prevalent with about 20,000 cases a year. Yet it is easily treatable. 
And back then, they had no idea about the bacteria that causes it. It's an infectious skin disease, and it, it, it would start in the skin, and then it would work into your nervous system, leaving you not being able to feel your extremities, usually starting with your hands, your feet, and tumors, and then in your ears, your earlobes. And because it's taken away all the senses and the nervous system, any uh, nicks or cuts that you get, any bumps or breaks, you can't tell that you're hurt. You don't realize that you've hurt. And so you tend to continue to re-hurt and to re-injure yourself. And often the hands and, and the feet become club and you lose the use of your fingers and in some cases the toes and, and in some cases, yes, they even fall off. It's a nasty disease. And because they didn't understand it back then, all you have is Leviticus 13. If you're big into reading about infectious skin diseases, Leviticus 13 is your scripture. I think about my elderly aunt who watches this thing on YouTube called Dr. Pimple Popper, and I couldn't help but think about my Aunt Gail when I was reading this. She would love Leviticus 13, I'm sure. It gives you something like eight different types of infectious skin diseases there in Leviticus 13, and basically God says that if that's what's happening to someone, they need to go see the priest. And the priest is going to look at it and go, oh, yeah, you have to stay outside, outside the camp for seven days. And at the end of seven days, you come back and I'll look at it. And if its sores are heal healed and you're better, then you can come back home. If not, you're out there. If it's worse, you're going to be banned. You're going to be banned outside the camp or outside the city. You can have no contact with anybody else except other lepers. You have to live in your own colony and you're, you're a pariah. No longer can your family members come and visit you. You have to stay a good distance apart, usually about 15 to 20 feet. And we thought that COVID social density was bad. It gets even worse. You have to cover your face. Hmm, sounds familiar. You have to cover your face when you're around crowds. And anytime anybody gets close, you have to shout out, I'm clean, I'm clean, to keep healthy people from getting the infection. Well, back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we have a, a story recorded in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus is walking down the road and a leper comes up to him and, and just asks, he calls out, he asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus heals him, but he tells him not to tell anybody, but to go show himself to the priest. Well, Mark tells us that instead of doing what Jesus told him to do there, the man spoke to everybody, freely telling everybody the news of this, of this, this wandering rabbi who, who healed him. And so you can imagine that every leper colony within a hundred miles soon knew about this. Well, imagine you're banned. You've lost all form of, of life within society, all form of religion, because you can no longer take part in the religious rituals and the, and the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals. And, and you see, you're stuck with a bunch of guys that are hurting like you are physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You've got no hope of any future. And, and you find out that some guy has come along and has a cure. Well, you're going to pay attention to that. You're going to listen to that. And so these 10 guys come out and then they yell, Master, Master. And knowing what we just discussed about leprosy, you go, well, of course, they've nothing to lose. Those guys have no hope. What does it take for you and I to play the MasterCard? I feel like I'm much in that old commercial. Uh, some of you will remember it. You know, there's things in life that happen, and for most things, I have what it takes. But for the others, everything else, I've got the MasterCard. You know, I feel like I'm that guy sometimes. You know, situation here, Walt can handle that. Situation here, 
You know, I, I, can, I can take care of that. A little bit harder, worse situation here, I can handle it. But for anything I can't handle, I pull out the MasterCard. God, you take care of these. You take care of that. And these others, they're within my range. Have you ever been there? You understand what I'm talking about? James says in chapter 5, he says this. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He should what? He should pray. If any of you are in trouble, he should pray. But then what does he say? He says, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise, Peter. James says, if you're sick and hurting, yeah, call out master. You pray. But if you're happy, if you're well, you should also play the master card there. There shouldn't be a day that goes by where you and I aren't saying, God, Master, thanks for that. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but, but I, I try to handle too many things on my own. And it's usually things that I, that I can't handle. That's why I'm glad that I've got the Jesus card and I can say, Master, you take care of this. Let me ask you, have you ever had a friend and the only time they ever contacted you was when they wanted something? You know, that guy that doesn't have any tools, hand tools, and he, he has to borrow your tools all the time, or that, that, that lady that doesn't have the basic, you know, cooking stuff, the, the bright pan to cook the cake that she's always cooking and always borrowing yours, you know, you ought to just buy her one for Christmas and just give it to her. That's what you do. But anyway, you ever had a friend like that? Uh, you feel real, real fine around that friend, don't you? You look forward to them calling and asking you, you know, for something again. Well, they're the friend we thank God for caller ID, don't you? You think, okay, I, I, can, I can listen to the voicemail and look at that one later. Well, sometimes I think I'm that friend for God. When I'm just coming to God to play my MasterCard because I have needs. God, I need. God, I want. And I'm glad God's not, oh, it's Walt again. Let it go to voicemail. Well, what does it take for you to daily depend upon God, to thank him? These guys, we understand. Oh, yeah, you call out, Master, you got leprosy. You're up a creek without him. But what does it take for you and I to reach out to God daily? On good days, how often do you say, God, you're the master of this great day, this great job. I've got finances to take me through this season of life. God, thanks. How often do we play that card? If you're struggling with that, I think that today will help you. Here's the observation. We had the question, what does it take to get you to play your MasterCard? The observation, verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Circle those words in your, in your uh, life notes. As they went, they were cleansed. Now, this verse has a, has a ton in it. He says, go show yourself the priests, which I've already explained a little bit why they would do that why I would tell them that the only way they're going to be welcomed back into society is if some priest certifies that they're, that they're well, and they, they, you know, they have to go to him, roll up their sleeves or pull up their tunic and show, hey, you know, the skin disease is gone. Because once you're in a leper colony, you usually don't come back. Can you see these guys came out of the colony because they've heard about Jesus and, and, and they, they've said, we've got to find this guy. And so they, they, they say, master, master. And so he, he sees them. And he says, go. That's an imperative there. Go. Go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's in their going, it's in their going, their obedience, that they are healed. And so here's the observation. Obedience always precedes God's blessings. Obedience always precedes God's blessings. 
If you're spending your life waiting for God to move and work, you can stand and wait for God your entire life and not see anything happen. In this book, in this book, you can go from cover to cover and, and you're, you're going to see you're going to see what it looks like. That blessing follows obedience. God says to Noah, Noah, you want to be saved? I'm going to bring a flood. It's going to cover the entire world. You got to take a long time to build a boat, an ark. And Noah's like, you know, what's an ark? You know, I'm going to bring rain and check it out. Read up through there up to chapter six. Noah's like, what's rain? Was no rain before that time. And God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to show you rain. I'm going to describe the flood. No, no, he just says, Noah, I want you to build this ark. And this is a big honking ark. It's a big structure. It ain't some little dinghy, okay? It's huge. It's huge. And so Noah spends years building this ark in a place where it doesn't rain. Why? Because God told him to do it. God said, I want you to be obedient. When it comes time for God to get his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, God said, all right, now that we've got the plagues out of the way, I want you to march to the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that don't make any sense at all. If you're escaping with a million to a million and a half people and you're trying to get away from this big, bad army behind you, you don't march towards the water. That's not what you do. There's no boats there to take you. It, it, your options are limited. But God says, head for the sea. And he doesn't split it and then say, now see, see what I've done for you? Walk toward it. He waits until they're on the edge. And then he goes, now let me show you what I'm going to do. He didn't tell them ahead of time that he was going to defeat the Egyptian army by swallowing them up in the sea after the Israelites had crossed. No, he told them to obey. He told him to trust him and to walk into an apparent dead end. When it comes time 40 years later, for his people to enter the promised land. They come to the Jordan River, and it's at flood stage. And he tells the priest to pick up the ark and to step into the water. Now, again, it just doesn't make sense. You want to cross this river at flood stage, and you're telling me to pick up the heaviest thing around, big piece of furniture, and start walking through the water? It doesn't make sense. And he doesn't split the river until, again, their feet touch the water. The moment they, they step into it, then the waters part on the Jordan River. And we see this principle again in the first recorded miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2. Jesus is at a wedding in, in the city of Cana with his mother and his disciples. And the host runs out of wine. And this is a good Jewish wedding. This, this is a tragedy in that culture to run out of wine at the wedding and people are worried. And like a good Jewish mother, Mary says, leave it to my boy. Do what he tells you to do. And somehow, somehow his mom knew that he could help with the wine problem. Think about that later. Okay. And so Jesus says, go and fill these six water jugs, water jugs, 20 to 30 gallons each. He says, go and fill those water jugs and then serve it. Wait a minute, Jesus, you said put water in there? You know, you don't want us to squash up some grapes and you know try to fool the people or something? You know, no, they weren't drunk yet. Okay? He says, he says, put water in those jugs and then serve it. And they obeyed, and blessing followed. Obedience precedes blessing, and blessing follows obedience. And if you're waiting for God to do amazing things in your life, and yet you haven't put in gear and started moving in obedience, don't be surprised. As you wait and wait and wait. 
Jesus says, go, show yourself to the priest, go. And as they go, they're cleansed. Okay, that's the intro. Now the message. Just kidding. Verse 15 in your life notes again. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. One of them came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Ooh. Oh. Jesus said, we're not all ten cleansed? I mean, like Jesus didn't know, okay? Jesus knew this. He's, it's a rhetorical question. When Jesus asks a question, when God the Father asks a question, it's not for information. It's to get you to think, okay? We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise except this foreigner? Well, Jesus plays the race card here. He just throws it out there, and he wants to make a point here. He's saying, I've got the most unclean of those guys here. i got the guy that's, that's not just from the wrong side of the tracks. He's on different tracks altogether. He plays the race card, and, he, and he's basically saying, I'm an equal opportunity Jesus. Everybody approaches me, even a Samaritan. You see, the reason why the Jews had such a big problem with the Samaritans was because the Samaritans were, were once part of the Jewish people. When Jews were exiled to Babylon, the, the Samaritans, the people who lived in Samaria, had started intermarrying with, with foreign people. And they took on foreign gods. They still kept Yahweh God, but, but they also kept the sacrifices. And you know, I've noticed that it's not the guy down the street who worships a frog, God from the Nile. That doesn't bu bug me as much because it's people that take a, a little bit of what we're supposed to worship and they pervert it. That's what, that's what really bugs me, even today. You know, I don't have a huge problem with people so different that they want to worship a plant. I'm just like, okay, well, it's free country. God gives them free will. That's, that's their right. It's the people that take the name of God and twist it and, and add things to it and add other books to it or beliefs, and it's like, oh, man, that bugs me. And it was the same for them back then. And they fought it passionately. A Samaritan should never touch a Jewish rabbi like Jesus. He should never be on the same road. He should never be greeted. He should never have any kind of relationship with this good Jewish rabbi. And Jesus plays it right there. The Samaritan runs back, falls at his feet, and Jesus plays the foreigner card. Where's everybody else? Because all I got here is a foreigner, the Samaritan. And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, wasn't he already healed? Yes. But with this, your faith has made you well or whole. Jesus still is saying a whole lot of other things. That made you well there. It's not just, hey, your leprosy is gone. That made you well as I've just told you that physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, you're good. You're good. You can approach me. We have a relationship. You're allowed at my feet. Jesus said, now it's your faith. Don't go looking for me on the roadside again anymore. Your faith is what's done this, and you are going to have that faith wherever you go. Everyone else got a physical healing. This one got the physical, emotional, social, and spiritual healing. Jesus said, you're totally whole. And there's something about gratitude here. There's, there's something about this vulnerability in Jesus, this glimpse of the heart of God that we get. So I've got four quick things I want you to take note of. Why gratitude is way more than an attitude. First of all, number one, it's there in your life notes. Gratitude is a decision and an action. 
a decision and an action. That's what Jesus was looking for. One that decided to turn back and what he did once he got there. You know, folks, that doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Did you notice that, that we have to teach kids to be grateful, to say thank you? I never taught my kids to take stuff. I never taught my kids to want stuff. I didn't have to. They naturally took stuff or they naturally wanted stuff. What I had to teach my kids was once something was done or given to them, and what do we say? Thank you. If you've raised kids, you know what it is to have to repeat that phrase over and over again, trying to train up a child in the way that he or she should go. Paul did that himself in Philippians chapter 4. It's there in your notes. We used this at the beginning of our last sermon series. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with what? With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's teaching them, he's teaching them and us to be grateful. I'm going to say it again, we have to learn to be grateful. Now here's a problem I have. You know, I've read this passage, and every, everyone seems to harp on the fact that it's a story about nine ungrateful lepers. It's about nine guys who weren't thankful and only one who was. Well, I think all ten were grateful and thankful. I really do. You can't tell me that someone who has a life-threatening disease that, that has the social impact on them that, that this disease did with no cure, no hope, is immediately healed, and that they're not going to be thankful. Those other nine that didn't show up, I think they were grateful. They were going to be reminded of it by the questions that they would have to answer for a long time. Every time they went back into a store that they hadn't been into for years, every time they went back to the barber shop, every time they go to a church service or any place else in society, people are going to come and say, hey, Larry, you know, Larry the leper, Larry, what happened? And, and they're going to have to tell the story. They're going to be reminded, well, I met Jesus and he changed everything. And I think they're going to be incredibly grateful, but they didn't show it. They were grateful anyway, but they didn't show it. What Jesus is saying is, I want a decision with an action. I don't want just good intentions. I don't want you to say, oh yeah, I'm thankful. I want action as well. What Jesus is looking for is an action with the decision. One came back, fell down, and simply said thanks and started praising him. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? Now, it might help us to understand that the Samaritan was, we're told it was in the border regions, and he was probably from across the border, and, and it would have taken him longer to get back home. And while these other guys, man, they could have beat feet back to where they, they were from there in Galilee much easier. They could find a priest, and they could get their green cards, and they could run into town and start hugging and kissing the people that they haven't kissed in years. They could pick up their kids that they hadn't seen or been within 20 feet of in years. They got to go back to spouses who've been praying for them every night and go back to homes and moms and dads and, and, and kids and sit in places they hadn't been allowed to sit in before. I mean, you've got to understand it's, it's great to have God to do something in, in your life, but, but man, there's, there's a lot to life. You've got to live life. Can you blame them? Well, Jesus did. Jesus did. Much like Edward Spencer, he says, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? How come only one came back? I know they were healed. Why is it just you and a foreigner to boot? You see, it's a decision and an action. Secondly, 
It's an act of humility. It's an act of humility. It's got to be an act of humility. That's why gratitude is way more than an attitude. When we make a decision to be thankful, a simple thing of coming to God and saying thank you, it creates within us humility. Anytime I'm thankful, what I'm admitting is God has done something or given me something that I don't deserve and is beyond me. And I just want to say thank you. It could be a simple thing or it could be a great thing. This act of gratitude that we're supposed to have as Christians, it constantly keeps us humble. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God's trying to tell his people, he says, here's the problem. You were in slavery, and of course you've been crying out to me because you're in slavery, but you're at the bottom. But I'm going to give you that promised land that I promised to Father Abraham. I'm going to set you up. You're going to have fields. You're going to have jobs. You're going to have plenty. You're going to be blessed. You're going to build houses. You're going to taste freedom. You're going to live in a land that's got wealth and success. And he says, here's my greatest fear about those of you that live in a wealthy land of success. I didn't have room on your life notes. This is on your song sheet that many of you are fanning yourselves with. I know it's hot out there. Look on your song sheet. Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Do you see what the fear is that God has about those of us that live in a country like America or Canada? He says, here's the problem. If your lepers are slaves, you're going to constantly play that MasterCard when you can. You're going to be calling out to me. When you live in a land that's free with success, and you start having an education, a job, you start having real estate, a, a place to live in, a permanent home, you're going to start looking around and you're going to say, you know, I created this. I earned this. My hard work, my education, my talent. I deserve this and anything else I can get. And he says, from the very beginning, 1,350, 1,400 years before, before Jesus, God is saying, here's my fear for my people. You're going to live in the land like we do today, and you're going to think that you've done something to deserve it. So he says, don't forget to always say thanks. Don't forget, because that constantly reminds you that every breath you take, everything you do is a gift from God. Don't stop giving thanks. Otherwise, you're going to think that it's all because of you. Wow, this is a passage alone for us today. So it's not just a decision and action, it's an act of humility. And thirdly, it draws us closer to God. Gratitude draws us closer to God. Notice that at the beginning, we got 10 guys who stood where? At a distance. They stood at a distance, calling out master. 
Ten guys who knew enough about who Jesus was and who knew the title. Gratitude brought them to this distance, but it brought the, 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 the final one to his feet. And if you're here today and you're feeling like there's a, a big gap between you and God, if you're feeling like for whatever reason your prayers don't go higher than the ceiling, if you feel like for some reason you and God just aren't connecting, here's what I encourage you to do. Be humble. Be humble. And then begin thanking him. Just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Master. Think about the things that, that, that you have to be thankful for. Gratitude will close that gap. It's what gets the heart to see and then to understand. You are God, and I owe it all to you. Now, some of you may have come here today with heartaches, and, and heartaches that are huge. You may have, have a loss of a relationship. It could be financial. It may be a health thing, and I'm not trying to minimize that. What I'm saying is that it is natural for us to focus on what we don't have or what we've lost instead of stopping and saying, let's be thankful for what we have. Yes, I got car problems, but thank God I have a car and I've got a vehicle and I've got roads to drive on that, that considering are pretty, pretty amazing. Have you ever driven in some third world countries? You'll come back and you'll thank God that you get to stop at a stoplight than, rather than that you missed the green. You know, I've had to wear boots, steel-toed boots, for six months straight on a ship. And I tell you what, I really enjoy walking on the grass barefoot or walking on the sand barefoot. Not, not here, but at the beach. Gratitude is what closes the gap between us and God. It starts prioritizing life. Thankfulness is one of the things that God looks for. In Romans 1.21, it says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. One of the things that God looks for to understand if you're with Him or not is thanklessness, or the converse, thankfulness. Romans 1, the whole entire end of this chapter, is about a group of people that God looks at the caller ID and says, I'm not talking to those folks anymore. You know why? They don't recognize me. They don't call me master. They've stopped giving thanks. And for 16 verses there in Romans 1, he says, I'm going to let them have their own desires. I'm going to let them have their own thoughts. I'm going to turn them over to their own relationships. I'm going to turn them over to their own sexuality. And you know what God had looked for? He had looked for thankfulness. He said, they don't give that. He says, that's how I know which people are with me. This guy, this foreign leper at my feet, he comes with gratitude. And I accept this. Now, where are the rest for whom I've done? It's a decision. It's an action. It's an act of humility. It draws us close to God. Finally, it's God's will. The most important reason why we have to be people that give thanks, even in the midst of hard times, it is God's will. First Thessalonians 5.16, there in your life notes. Be joyful when? Always. Be joyful always. It, it, isn't, it doesn't say be joyful when things are going well. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks always. This is God's will for his people. You may be praying about jobs, relationships, finances, schooling, about the kids or the grandkids. And some of you may be praying for things where the Bible doesn't say whether or not explicitly it is God's will. It's just one of those things where you say, hey, God, you know, can you can you give me the answer that I desire for this? Well, I would ask you this, this question. Why do you think God's going to answer those things 
when the things that he specifically says in black and white are his will, we aren't doing. It makes no sense. Why would he answer things that are kind of in that gray area? He says, you want to know what God's will is for your life? Here's an easy one. Be a people who give thanks in every situation and every circumstance. Not because we have a God who is emotionally needy. You know, we got to stroke his ego. Not be, but, but it's because he realizes this is going to radically change how you and I see life. It's going to change the way we see ourselves and what we have and what's still missing and what we don't have. And he says, this is going to close the gap between you and me. It's going to fight off our, our tendency to be proud, thinking that this life is ours and, and constantly thinking, thanking him for the little things will, will keep us to understand that it's not ours. We're just entrusted. We're stewards with it. It'll keep you and me humble. So I ask you this question today and, and ask you to ponder it during this coming week. Is your gratitude more than an attitude? Is your gratitude more than an attitude? Now, James says, let's not just be hearers of the word, but let's be doers of the word. And I want to facilitate you doing this. If, if you look at your life notes in the back there, after the quest, the challenge question, I've got the numbers 1 to 12, and it shouldn't stop at 12. I just ran out of room on the paper there. What I'd like for you to do this week is I want you to find a quiet place where you can sit down and think and thank. Sit down and think and thank. I want you to write down the things that you're thankful to God for. It may be something that you've always taken for granted. Just simply give him thanks and spend time with him in thankfulness. Amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!